What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, aka John and John. Well, I guess we have Army-Navy this weekend, and we have uh, some of the FCS playoff games and the Division II playoff games, but we don't have major college football in a weekend for the first time in a while. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. I am with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. You can read him at pac12hotline.com. Wilner, we have a lot to get to today. Well, you know, you, you've kind of got the rundown. Where are we going with this thing? We do. Well, one thing that's happening this weekend is the Heisman, so uh, we can— Talk a little about who we think might win. Uh, we are kind of pro- prohibited from disclosing our our ballots at this point. Uh, we can uh, we can address a radical NCAA plan. Uh, we can talk about why Oregon is playing Liberty. Did the Ducks get hosed? Uh, we can talk about the the playoff controversy and how the committee treated Florida State. Uh, we could talk about whether uh, Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyukov is incompetent or playing politics, uh, since you kind of addressed that in a terrific column today. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot to get to. Let me ask you, though, but let me go back. Will you watch Army-Navy? Is that Will you watch the FCS games? Will you watch the Division II games, or are you mostly just kind of spending your Saturday different than most other Saturdays in college football? Well, I have got a long list of uh, things to do around the house and with the kids that I haven't gotten to since I can't even remember when. Because I was going to say August, but August was really busy with uh, the Pac-12 collapse. So maybe since July, I've got a to-do list that's built up. Like what? Do you, so like, I give will, me an I idea. Will, give, me, give me an idea of one thing that you have to do around the Wilner household. Oh well, there's a some, part of the kitchen. Uh, the island in the kitchen came came apart, so I gotta I gotta try to get that back on without destroying the whole thing. You so fix your island. a little bit of handyman work, we'll see. That doesn't always go very well, to be honest. <laughs> but I got to give it a shot. It's been on the list since July. How about you this You're, weekend? Well, I had one year. I don't know why this popped into my head. It's not happening right now. But I had one year that it, it July came, and I realized that the Christmas tree that we had from the prior Christmas was still on the side of the house. Like the nice. the pine needles had, you know, obviously changed colors and the didn't look great. But I had taken it out of the house. Like when Christmas happens, the like day after Christmas, the tree goes. And I had taken it out and I had intended fully to kind of get rid of it or cut it in half, stick it in the yard waste bin, whatever they do, you know, whatever they let us do. But I had shoved it on the side of the house and I never go to the side of the house. And I here I was in July staring at the Christmas tree. So I'm with you, man. Sometimes things just need to get done, and and uh, you know if if you have a yep. chance to get on top of it, get on get it that get that island yeah. done this weekend. Because it's going to be busy. You know, it's going to get busy, and I will watch part of the Army Navy game because I love that game. I, I may try to catch the. Uh, I think Belichick's doing the guest picking, so that might be interesting to watch to watch him on on game day. But uh, yeah, going to try to get a few things uh, done around the house, and I will. Uh, I will watch the Heisman ceremony as difficult as it is to get through. I mean, 
you know, it's just uh, it, it, it can be painful getting getting to the point where they announce the winner, although I don't know how much drama there's going to be this year. And we should certainly get into that a little bit. Yeah. You think Jaden Daniels wins it? I mean, it feels like that's where the award's going to go. Right. And I do think so. I was just looking bet MGM. He is the overwhelming favorite on bet MGM. He is minus fourteen hundred. Wow. Uh, so in other words, you got to bet fourteen hundred to win a hundred. Uh, Michael Penix is at plus nine hundred. He's the second betting favorite, and then Bo Nix is at uh, plus twenty two hundred. So Nix twenty two to one, uh, Penix nine to one, and Daniels is like I think he's probably like one to fifteen or something. I, Huge know, favorite. We're not supposed to reveal our ballots, but I I will say this: like those three guys are on my ballot. They're just not in that order. And yeah, I, yeah. Uh, how about you? Is that, you yeah. know, can you say that? I Well, yeah, I guess we just did, huh? But, but <laughs> yeah, I have the three know, the guys. Is, they're just not in that order. I'm not saying what my ballot looks like, but they're not in yeah. that order. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought, to me, the best player in the country is Brock Bowers, a tight end at Georgia. Yeah. But he was hurt for a long time, missed a bunch of games, and it's, you know, it's tough Tight ends are dependent upon the the passing game to make an impact. But for for me, if you're saying who's the single best player pound for pound, regardless of position, I would say it's Brock Bowers. But he did not make my ballot. And and Marvin Harrison Jr. is high up there too. And he's a finalist. He was not on my ballot. But this is real. There's a lot to get into about the Heisman, and we could probably do it next week yeah. after uh, okay. it's official. But this te- you know provides a lot of insight into the, the whole. The, the balance of power in the Heisman voting and how difficult it is for Pac-12 players to win the thing. Yeah, I think it, you know, Caleb Williams being an outlier and, you know, he also had the USC brand behind him. I think that helped him immensely. But, you know, I, I kept, when I when it came time for me to cast my ballot, and we can get into more of this next week, but I kept, I came down to one thing and one thing only. What did this player mean to their team? You know, not head to head. Not you can't compare one player to the other statistically. But what did they mean to their team? And the problem I had with Jaden Daniels, and again, he's on my ballot somewhere, is that I think LSU has the same record with or without him. If you know, wins over replacement type situation. And I think you know, forget the Heisman for a second. Who's the MVP in college football? To me, it was Michael Penix Jr. was the MVP in college football. And I think if, if we had an MVP award, it's going to go to that guy because I don't think Washington is anywhere near the playoff with just an average quarterback at that position. Yeah, heck of a point. And you also wonder how the the media machine in the SEC would be treating it if the situation were reversed, right? What if Jaden Daniels was 13-0? and but Michael Penix Jr. or Bo Nix had had this incredible statistical season, uh, in some ways unprecedented statistical season for a team that lost three games. I would think that the SEC media machine might be talking about how important it is to win and to make the playoff. But yeah, w- yeah we'll get into more of that yeah. next week. And here's the other thing I heard that I think was laughable. It you talk about, you know, there was a lot of criticism of Bo Nix in the SEC footprint, and I heard people say he left the SEC because he couldn't compete at Auburn, which I don't think is true. But they he left and he went to the Pac-12 and he had success because he wasn't in the SEC. Well, the same could be said of Jaden Daniels. He left Arizona State 
to go to the SEC footprint. Like, you know, I don't think he was running from the Pac-12, but he had more success in the SEC than he did in the Pac-12. And the same could be said of Penix, who left the Big Ten to go to the Pac-12. He wasn't running from anything. This is just the world they live and play in. Like, that, to me, that narrative is just so full of holes. It is. And this year, too, you can also make a case that the Pac-12 was as good as the SEC, which is not something... Not something that we can say very often. In fact, that kind of leads into uh, a good topic, I think, the the playoff. Because certainly how the SEC was viewed impacted the playoff committee. What did you think? Let's go back last Sunday. And they reveal number four. I mean, one, two were pretty obvious at that point. What did you think when you saw Texas and, and Alabama, but not Florida State? I think this has been an ongoing problem that was a looming problem. I think the committee boxed itself into a corner by not demoting Florida State earlier. Could have saved themselves a lot of grief, but I think they were hoping yes. that the you know the lack of a quarterback would result in a loss on the field and do their job for them. But they clearly you know don't think Florida State can beat Alabama and Texas and Washington and and uh, Michigan, and so they. You know, they put him fifth. and But, like, if you have that logic, do you really have him in front of Georgia? You shouldn't if that's your logic. So I think their mistake right. was the subsequent weeks that came in, in front of the decision where they didn't demote him when, like, all along they probably planned to. Yeah, no, absolutely. It doesn't make sense if you got him fifth, right? Either if they're not good enough to, to beat Bama or as good as Bama, then there's no way you can argue that they are better than Georgia. That did not make any sense. Uh, I, I It's a flawed system, right? That's ultimately, that's what it comes down to, right? They they had to pick five champions for four spots. And the reason we have, haven't had this controversy many years over the, what has it been, 12 years of the playoff is because of Pac-12, many of those years, the Pac-12 did not have a worthy champion. So the Pac-12's second tier status made it much easier for the committee because they were dealing with four conferences for four spots. A lot of these years, Pac-12 has been out of it in early November, late October. You had a whole bunch, every, everybody had at least two losses. This year, finally, the Pac-12's got a champion that's worthy, and that creates the five for four. The only other time they had this much controversy, and I'm not, it didn't even approach this, but it was still very controversial, was the first year, 2014, with uh, with TCU and Ohio State, and what happened that year? The Pac-12 had a worthy champion, Oregon, which was the number two seed. So when the Pac-12 is involved, all of a sudden it becomes a math problem. And Pac-12's absence for so many years kind of was just a big break for the committee. This was the year, though, we needed an expansion to 12 because, you know, I— I think you've got seven or eight teams that I really would like to see mix it up, and I'm not going to blame Florida State if uh, you know they win their bowl game. I'm not going to blame them if they try to claim a part of the national championship. They should. Yeah, I don't either. And it'll be that opportunity in some ways is there, right? Because if they beat Georgia in the Orange Bowl, they may get some votes. They may, you know, fourteen and zero. They would have beaten LSU, Georgia. I mean. It'd be the most compelling case for a split champion that we have had in the playoff era. That's for sure. the The other question I have, though, is is who would you have as your number one seed? To me, they got it wrong with Michigan. 
I'm thinking the number one seed, Pacific Cod. <laughs> number number two, Dungeness Crab. And then it's tight, you know, like I'm sure it was tight between Texas and Alabama. Uh, it, to me, it's tight between Pacific Rockfish and the Gulf Grouper. What, what, what is your number you're, one? You're talking What's about your... Pacific seafood now. I'm talking for... about Pacific yeah. seafood. That right. is right. You uh, got I, it. I'm yeah. going wild salmon or Columbia River steelhead. I'm, okay. I'm going right here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, for people who don't know, Pacific Seafood is the sponsor of this podcast. And you can go to PacificSeafood.com if you want to order from them. And uh, if you want to send a gift this holiday season, use the promo code Konzano and Wilner at checkout and you get 12% off your order. So PacificSeafood.com, use the promo code Konzano and Wilner. I'm going Columbia River Steelhead or Wild Salmon. You're free to do what you want. Uh, you guys been looking on their website? I'm, I'm doing. I'm giving myself a gift. We're we're in the process of ordering, and uh, we've got salmon and cod at, atop the list. Uh, we might we might uh, sample the uh, the beef because they do have terrific beef and and chicken products as well. It's a third generation family owned business based in Portland, and the mission is to feed the world the healthiest protein on the planet. I was at the uh, Pac-12 championship game, and I met the owner of Pacific Seafood. He was on the sideline before the game, and got a chance to say hi to him. And uh, it's not—it's just nice. It's a, you know, it's, this is a family business, and they've been doing it a long time since 1941. So uh, give them a look, PacificSeafood.com. I'm gathering they were on the Oregon side. They were—they were on the Oregon side, but I think you know, I think their sponsorship, I think, of the Pac-12 has been a thing, and I yeah. think like a lot of people, they, you know, I think there is some. There was some there was some sadness around that Pac-12 championship game, and they didn't promote it very well in Vegas. The game itself, it was almost like the game was going on and nobody was talking about it except at the stadium. It was really, really a different feel from some of the other championship games. So, and you uh, you laid it out pretty well in the column today. I thought it was really really sharp uh, about how the commissioner approached uh, his role on on Friday night with the trophy and uh, and more generally speaking, you, you got into why is he, why did he flip, uh, uh, seemingly flip his position with regard to, to Washington State and Oregon State? Why don't you kind yeah, of lay out for people your thoughts? Everybody saw him. Everybody saw him at the end of the you know championship game. He's handing this trophy to Kalen DeBoer, and I kind of wondered, would he – stand there and say a few words what would he do and so I was watching it and then I later looked back at the video I mean he literally hands the trophy to DeBoer and then never really faces forward and keeps his back to the camera and then just kind of slips between the mascot and Michael Penix Jr. and disappears into the crowd like never it was like you know Lucky Luciano leaving Vegas like he he <laughs> got out of Dodge and and I get it. I, I almost feel like it was he had practiced it. It was so smooth. Like the footwork was like a. It was like watching Dancing with the Stars. I mean, it, he got out of there. And but you know, I spoke with him briefly before kickoff. He said he would be around. I never saw him again. Um, and I, you know, I didn't need to have a big conversation with him. But I did. Like one of the looming questions, and it's not just me. I think Oregon State and Washington State would love to know why he flipped his position. Like, here was a guy, when USC and UCLA left in the summer of 2022, 
they held 20 board meetings after that without the two LA schools. Okay, nobody objected to that. Colorado leaves. They they you know excluded them from board meetings. Uh, nobody objected. Consistent behavior. He text messages to me on August 9th, the morning after the conference really splintered. As of today, we have four board members. That text has showed up in Discovery. And, you know, that was Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal. So at that point, he's still saying Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal are board members. Then Stanford and Cal leave for the ACC, and he flips and sides with the 10 departing schools. And then he acts like he has 12 board members all of a sudden and attempts to call this board meeting or this meeting that would have brought USC and UCLA back into the room. And it's it's just strange to me. Like, I'm just trying to figure out what happened in his mind. And it's possible, like, it has been suggested to me that he's incompetent. Some of the Pac-12 presidents and ADs have said, I think it's incompetence. Others have said his attorney probably trying to get him to you know be a neutral party in this, didn't want to end up on the wrong side of a lawsuit. Others have said that he must have heard what Washington State and Oregon State were saying about him. They were mad, and they were saying he's not part of our future. Was he afraid they were going to fire him with cause and say, you know, hey, he was incompetent. We're not paying him the $3.6 million that he's going to make. It's just a wild question. And what's your prevailing theory on why Klyovkov has gone, you know, turned his back essentially, not just at the trophy ceremony, but turned his back on Oregon State and Washington State? I mean, I think he's just doing what's best for him legally in terms of collecting his as much of his contract as as he can. Right now, we should if we assume he signed a five year deal, he is basically started in July of 2021. So he's basically two and a half years into a deal that is probably worth about three and a half million a year. So he's got seven, you know, close to nine million dollars still coming to him. And I think he's probably doing uh, what he thinks is going to give him the best chance of collecting and not get, uh, you know, we see if they try to fire him with cause. I mean, that could just end up in some kind of protracted lawsuit that the schools don't want to deal with. Right. But uh, he it certainly does seem like he flipped. And and I have to imagine it, it had something to do with trying to save his own skin. The other piece, too, is that he hasn't offered a public comment since the Pac-12 Football Media Day, middle of July, July 20th or so, right? He got on stage. He said things were looking good. He said the longer we wait, the better options we have. He said he wasn't worried about anybody leaving, yada, yada, yada. And uh, 10 days late, well, a few days later, Colorado leaves. 10 days later, the thing blows up. He has not uttered a peep publicly since then. Now, I'm sure part of that's because there's this lawsuit going on. Part of it is he wants to protect himself for his contract purposes. But he owes Pac-12 fans and and he owes the Pac-12 schools uh, an explanation. If something happened behind the scenes that the public doesn't know that would help inform the situation, uh, he's going to at some point he's got to talk, I think. And he needs to be uh, accountable and uh, and let people know. What what happened and why it happened? Because you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, this has affected a lot of people, not just Oregon State and Washington State fans and employees and athletes, but but a lot of people. And the guy who's in charge of the ship that rams into the iceberg in the North Atlantic 
needs to uh, explain what happened there. So we'll see if he does go public at some point. I, you know, I hope the lawsuit process ends, you know, for our sakes and everybody's involved. Let's hope it ends sooner than later. But when it does, uh, you know, hopefully he will he will come forward in public and and help uh, shed some light on what happened. Yeah. And I don't need like you know, a book to be written right now. I, I think that there's just some people out there, and you're right when you talk about the other people who are affected by this. There are sponsors. There are people at stadiums. There are, you know, people at Oregon State and Washington State. And, well, I got to be honest with you. When I arrived at Allegiant Stadium, I went a day before over to the stadium to pick up my credential, and there were three or four Pac-12 employees sitting in the tent for credential pickup. And, there was kind of this sadness just kind of looming over the scene there. And I said to them, I said, you know, I, I sure wish this conference was going on, you know, continuing. And one of the employees said, I love my job. And everybody kind of nodded. Like there were a lot of people, 192 employee, full-time employees. There were a lot of people impacted by it. And it was his job to keep the conference together and get a media rights deal and yeah, he should speak publicly about it. And I think he owes that to, you know, you, you know, he may not believe it or his attorney may not believe it, you know, but you got three point six million dollars a year. You're being paid to lead, you know. Yeah. At some point, you got to come out and talk. And and the the championship game would have been a great opportunity to do that. And I just did not get the impression he was interested in really having a conversation there. Yeah, no, I'm sure he wasn't. So you were in Vegas on on Friday. I was there uh, a couple days later for the Sports Business Journal's Intercollegiate Athletics Forum, which they hold every year. And uh, it was fascinating. And I got to say the highlight, and we should get into this a little bit, the highlight was NCAA President Charlie Baker on Wednesday uh, talked publicly about this radical proposal he's got to change uh, how college sports functions, really. And for the first time ever, the NCAA is proposing that the schools pay the players. And, uh, well, I don't know what version of this proposal will ultimately get passed, but the basics of it are that Baker wants to create a subdivision that's essentially for the top football playing schools – and they would pay uh, at what they're terming an, an educational trust fund. They'd pay half the athletes at every school. The schools would the schools would do the would make the payments thirty thousand dollars a year minimum per year per athlete. So if you got two hundred athletes that are getting paid thirty thousand a year, that's you know we're we're talking about a lot of money six million dollars a year directly from schools from the athletic departments to the players and it is a radical proposal it's 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 very proactive it's also very defensive right because the NCAA is facing all these lawsuits about its economic model and so here comes this new president who is trying to to ward off disaster and uh he's proposing that the schools pay the players and that will form this subdivision of only the richest schools uh you know playing and i don't know how many that would be 60 70 but to me it is a, a fascinating concept and, and it would change college sports as we know it in the 19 late 1980s nike had michael jordan going and it had bo jackson in the bo nose campaign 
And I only know this because my agent who, you know, does my radio contract for me, my radio show contract, Fred Schreier, he was the guy who started Nike's sort of in-house agency that they had where Nike was uncomfortable when Michael Jordan started doing endorsements for Fruit of the Loom. Phil Knight didn't like it, okay? So Phil Knight didn't want Jordan and Bo Jackson and Jerry Rice kind of running around doing their own thing after he had invested so much with Nike and branding. I think there's a little bit of that at play in this Baker proposal because the way I understand it, Wilner, and you talk me out of it if, if I'm wrong here, is that the schools would pay the athletes but then retain sort of some control over what they do in the NIL endorsement space. And then the schools would have the ability to go out and put the athletes to work, so to speak, as potential endorsers. Am I reading that right? I mean, is this is this like Nike creating its own in-house sports agency? A little bit, yeah. The 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 NIL name, image, and likeness would go to the the schools would have the option to pay players for their name, image, and likeness. Whereas right now it's all done outside of the schools, you know, specifically. Yeah, you got all these collectives, right? So Oregon's got what do they call it? Division Street. You know, it's a collective that pays uh name image like this money to to Oregon athletes. A lot of schools have them. And this proposal would essentially take take that and move it in-house. So there would be yeah. no more collectives of boosters and donors. The schools would control the NIL. So yeah, I mean that's a lot of what it is. It's very radical. I you know the NCAA is there are two thousand schools in the NCAA. We think of the NCAA as you know, 60 or 70 football schools, but there are 2000 schools across all the divisions. You got Alabama and Alabama state in the, under the same umbrella. Uh, it is unwieldy and slow to move. And that as those are two key reasons why it has gotten battered in court and is facing a, a monumental lawsuit that could result in billions of dollars in damages and they're trying to kind of get ahead of it. They're way behind and trying to get ahead of it. And this is a little bit of a Hail Mary, but it's a fascinating concept uh, that you'd have the, the athletic departments paying $30,000 a year uh, to football and basketball players and, and other other athletes, right? Because they got to be compliant with, with Title IX. And then the schools are going to turn around and they're going to go to their sponsors and they're going to say, hey, I can have... Bo Nix or Michael Penix Jr. do an endorsement for you. Um, but what you need to do is buy a campaign and a sponsorship uh, inside the stadium, and then we'll put their face on the thing, and, you know, it, it, this becomes a business partnership. This is what Nike did. I mean, Nike Nike didn't like, Phil didn't like that that Michael was doing Fruit of the Loom, and, you know, an underwear commercial. Like, and he didn't, so they wanted control of Bo Jackson and Jerry Rice and Troy Aikman and, so they offered them all sort of a flat salary, and they said, we'll handle your endorsements. And it worked to a certain extent, and it was a novel idea. But I think Charlie Baker's kind of uh, tapping into that a little bit here. We'll see what happens with that. He is. Uh, there's. I have one other topic. I don't know what, what you've got on, on your list. But I think we should hit the most controversial aspect of the Pac-12 bowl selection process. And you know what I'm talking about. The Liberty Flames. <laughs> You've probably heard from some of your your folks, both on radio and, and your readers at johnkanzano.com. 
about Oregon playing Liberty, right? I can't imagine Duck fans are very happy. They're not, and they don't understand why it happened. And I'll give a little bit on Liberty, and then you tell us the why, because you've talked to the Fiesta Bowl. But a little bit on Liberty. I mean, this is Jerry Falwell Sr. founds the school in the early 70s. Um, it's got an enrollment of about 16,000, just started playing major college football and is in the Conference USA. The online enrollment at Liberty is more than 100,000. So this thing's a cash cow. I mean, they're doing a lot of online courses, a lot of students. Um, it's, uh, you know, a little bit of homeschool flavor to it. And, you know, they play a schedule that is the worst schedule in the country. They don't play any Power 5 conference teams in their season. They go 13-0. and They beat teams like Western Kentucky and New Mexico State. They played New Mexico State twice. And it's just not an impressive resume. But, Wilner, you tell me, how does Oregon end up in this game? So I'm piecing this together based on uh, a couple of brief conversations with folks related to the Fiesta Bowl with just general knowledge of the process and, and a couple of sources. And basically, so what happens is there were three bowls that were taken at large teams, right? The, the Peach, the Cotton, and the Fiesta. And the committee is the one that assigns the teams, Right. You, Oregon fans who are upset about Liberty do not blame the Fiesta Bowl. They have to take what the committee gives them. So the committee picks the playoff teams and then they go down and do the other New Year's six games. And they, you know, they go down in order of the rankings and they're putting the teams basically the places that make the most geographic sense. And for Oregon, obviously, that is going to Phoenix for the Fiesta Bowl. OK, but here's the issue. One of those bowls, Peach, Fiesta, Cotton has to host the group, the best group of five team, the highest ranked group of five team, which was Liberty. They were one spot ahead of SMU. I think that was uh, in some ways as big a mistake by the committee as as the Florida State deal. Uh, it, harder to justify in some regards because uh, Liberty had, the, like you said, the worst schedule. SMU beat a ranked team to win the American Conference Championship and, and Liberty was still ahead of them. So Liberty becomes the group of five team in the New Year's Six games. So why are they in the Fiesta Bowl? Well, there's basically this agreement between the Peach, Cotton, and Fiesta Bowls where they rotate the group of five team, right? Because everybody wants Power Five against Power Five, but each year somebody's got to have Power Five against Group of Five. So the Fiesta Bowl had a group of five team in 2018. And the Fiesta Bowl was supposed to have a group of five team in 2021, except that was the year Cincinnati from the group of five qualified for the playoff. So the Fiesta, all of a sudden, instead of having Cincinnati, the Fiesta gets Notre Dame against Oklahoma State, right? Power five against power five. Last year, they couldn't assign the Fiesta, the group of five team that it missed in 2021, because last year the Fiesta was part of the playoff. This is the first time since the Fiesta lost its group of five team in 2021 that it could basically host a group of five to kind of balance, rebalance the rotation with those three bowls, right? So the committee says, sorry, Fiesta. Liberty's coming from 3,000 miles away. Sorry, Fiesta. Oregon's ranked eighth and should, you know, maybe have a better, higher ranked opponent. Sorry, Fiesta. Uh, you're not getting Missouri, which would make geographic sense. 
We're giving you liberty because that is the way to rebalance this distribution agreement that they have between the Fiesta, the cotton, and the peach. The Fiesta missed its turn in 2021. Now they're getting liberty as a result. So that is the explanation that I've put together for why liberty is playing uh, playing Oregon. And it's really two things, right? It's why is the group of five team in the Fiesta, and then it's why is it liberty and not SMU? SMU would be a much better opponent for Oregon, right? And make more sense geographically too. But that's that's kind of the way it broke down. And, uh, you know, the group of five teams have played very well in their New Year's six games. They've won four times against power five opponents. I don't know that Liberty's got what it takes. Bo Nix is playing, right? I haven't heard of many Oregon guys opting out. Yeah, and here's the other thing. The Pac-12 championship game loser is 0-11 in its subsequent bowl game. How about that for a fun fact? This is going to break the streak. Oregon's going to win this game, win it going away. We'll give our bull picks on the next episode, but you know this isn't going to be eighty-one to seven like they had against Portland State earlier in the in the year. Oh, that's right. But yeah, it's going to be. I think this one potentially could be really ugly in a statement game. But Bo Nix is going to play as he says he is. Oregon should have no problem with this game. But you know we watched Tulane beat USC last year, so in this same type of matchup, but. This is not Tulane. That Tulane team had some great players and and uh, you know gave USC everything they could handle in what was a great game last yeah. year in the bowl season. And that but. Tulane team would have been again in the power. They would be playing Oregon if they had beaten SMU because Tulane was the highest ranked group of five team. And then they lost the American championship game to SMU and that opened the door for Liberty. But if Tulane had won that game, Tulane would be playing the Ducks. That'd be a really good game. I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription or a paid subscription. What works for you works for me. I'm with John Wilner, as always. You can find him at Pac12Hotline.com. Wilner, uh, you're going to get on PacificSeafood.com. I encourage our listeners to go to PacificSeafood.com. Use the promo code Kanzano and we'll check out 12% off your your order. And this is a great holiday gift for anybody interested in sending uh, great seafood to a friend or family member. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We got our bowl picks next week, right? Bowl picks, Heisman wrap up. We got, yeah, there's a lot to transfer portal. Lots of December is busier than, than September through uh, November in some regards, but thanks everybody for listening. Thank you so much to Pacific seafood.